okay, what if Eminem wrote a song about Kim Stanley Robinson? Because he has both the names of the fictional characters in Eminem songs. So he'd be like, Dear Kim, I, I'm going to kill you. You're in the trunk of my car. Dear Eminem, this is Stan. I love you. Pretty cool, right? Will you then, kill me? <laughs> but then it's also, if, uh, it's also green, though. So it's like, Dear Kim, I'm gonna, you're in the trunk of my uh, moon rover that runs maybe. entirely on the solar power. I'm going to kill you, bitch. <laughs> How about this? What if Kim Stanley Robinson wrote a book about Haley's Comet? Is Haley the, oh. yeah, the name of Eminem's daughter, right? Well, but the thing is, it can't just be Haley's Comet. It also has to be like Kim writing about the comet and being like, isn't it like Eminem's daughter? <laughs> it's beautiful and rare, like Haley Mathers. Haley's right, Comet, I love you. I'm just going to stop doing drugs. <laughs> in the future, she's going to wind up as a scientist who's going to have to protect us from Haley's Comet, or I guess she will uh, lead a cohort. What do you of... think Haley's Comet is going to do to us exactly? <laughs> well, it's going to bypass Earth, and uh, I bet a bunch of Earthlings, humans, will try to uh, get on it, intercept it, and take control of it, and then fly it somewhere else and create their own society. That's what the Heaven's Gate cult was with the Hale Bob yeah. comet. That's why Haley's they... Gate. Haley's Gate. Yeah, I like it. Haley's Gate. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yes. um, uh, have you seen a picture of her? Because she looks just like Eminem. It's uncanny. Well, that's weird. I'm looking it up right now. Um, this is our first episode, folks. Uh, oh, it's Hallie. Oh no, it's Haley. Okay, it's spelled looks kind of like. <laughs> Hallie, but it is Taylor. Yeah. She is 25 now. Jesus Christ. She graduated high school in 2014. Whoa. She's a Spartan. They grow Michigan up so State. fast. That's weird. Eminem's daughter. <laughs> huh. Um, but <laughs> this is our first episode under the Biden presidency. Things feel different. I feel the soul. I feel science. Did you feel that? The, the president who believes in science hitting you right in the fucking membrane? Yeah. The soul yeah, of the I feel like reaching across restored. the aisle. <laughs> giving someone to reach around. That's what I feel like doing. Yeah. Did yeah, you see to the other side of the podcast? All the libs on Twitter yesterday who were like, finally, I can have sex again. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was a rule, but that would be really tough if that was like a, a presidential rule. You, you, you can't. I think the, you can't imp not. the implication was that they were just so overwhelmed by the Trump presidency that it was like who could fuck at a time like this or like it was a turn off or something <laughs> who could fuck at a time like this i fucked all through the trump presidency. i don't know about those people that's crazy that you were like trump cell or something the most i've ever the most sex i've ever had was during prompts prompts pumps uh was during pumping was during trump, <laughs> trump yes. the pump administration popular yes. strip club in uh east williamsburg trump's uh, <laughs> that's what's gonna happen now he's gonna open a strip club in florida he'd be great at it he just needs yeah. to get away from politics and get back into his wheelhouse with just shady businesses like that right which he this is what he wanted to do all along this was this was a bit to, to promote his tv network that never happened maybe now it will but it looks like he's starting a third party which will which will serve as a tax shelter i'm sure i think he's going to jail 
You're going to jail, Mr. Trump. We'll see. I think he's going to find his way out of it. He's still a member of the Billionaires Club, you know. The Billionaires Boys Club? Yes. You guys know the those shirts? It's about Donald Trump. Yeah. The Patriot Party, which is the party that he's talking about starting, there already was a, a group called the Patriot Party. I don't think they were a political party, but they were like a fucking like black panther anti-fascist thing in the 60s like a mm-hmm. like you know some group like that which people have pointed out in a very epic own of the, the trump that he's uh he's antifa now maybe he'll make the transition maybe be like folks it feels like the 60s again we need to ally with the black panther party or- orange block Everyone wear orange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You see, though, Trump is going to make the distinction, to be clear. The Patriots Party is not a reference to that party. It's a reference to the immortal New England Patriots with close personal friend Tom Brady. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Right. Yeah. Actually, his beautiful wife, they're the, Giselle. They're the Buccaneers. He's going to be near Tom Brady now. He's going back to Florida. He's going to be able to hang out with Tommy B. Oh, uh, I w- if I was a fly on a wall in that room, let oh. me in there. <laughs> I'm gonna start. The let d- me hang out with Tom. <laughs> I'm gonna start the Detroit Lions party if that's what we're doing, because they lose yeah. all the time. Did you see their new coach today? No, I don't know anything about football. I just know they he's, lose. You're the only one who follows football, Anders. Well, it's been he's this has been trending on Twitter because he's insane. He was talking about. Uh, <laughs> I'll send the link. He's crazy. Cool. Uh, he's talking about killing people and beating people up, and <laughs> it's great. Oh, that rules! I love the. That'd be a scary football team to go up against. Like they're helmed by an insane man. He broke <laughs> out of the asylum, and now he he manages a football team or coaches <laughs> them or whatever. The Baron of a deserted town His with nothing to lose. <laughs> yeah, we talked about. We talked about Detroit in the interview, actually. We did. Um, we did. As you could tell from the intro, today we're talking about the police <laughs> and how to fix them. Uh, listen, man, I'm very hungover because of celebrating Joe Biden's presidency last night. Right, it's that else. wild inaug. Yeah. We were all turning up for the inaug. Thanks for coming to the stream for yep. the 50 of you who showed up to that. It was nuts. I had half a hard seltzer. I made a bowl of... What's called swamp water, which is a punch you make out of a liquor called chartreuse that's green. And uh, me and my roommate split it and I'm real hungover from it. We watched, uh, I watched Revenge of the Sith and Wishmaster 3. It was a pretty wild night. Nice. The way it was intended to be viewed in that swamp water. Yeah. Drunk on swamp water watching the third prequel. And I have to say, I'm I'm a I'm a true like millennial now. I I believe I'm team struggle session on the, the prequels. They make more sense as movies than the fucking new Star Wars movies. And I was pretty trash. Oh, than the the new ones who are coming now. Okay. I thought yeah. you were comparing to the, the Original. No, 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 I'm not that crazy. That's that's a okay. contrarian psycho if you meet yeah. somebody who's like <laughs> the prequels are better than the Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. I genuinely enjoyed episode three and I wasn't even on that swamp water. <laughs> it's great. It's they 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 figured it out by the third movie, and it makes the whole thing come together because you have like 
you realize, oh, the Republic was the Republic, and then uh, it 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 turned into Empire, you know, and that's why there's right. like a new Republic, but it turned into it because of this like split. Could you imagine I, right. a Republic that turns into an Empire? No, I'm saying it actually makes sense if you re- if you read history and stuff. And like, oh no, they made an apt metaphor for like you know liberal democracy turning into Empire, and then there being like uh, rebels and shit like that. Look, you're not going to like this, but George Lucas is a leftist. He's a comrade. He you have to support his products. He considers himself one. I don't know if we would consider him one, but he did uh, have a, a ranch that I think there's some zoning issue. Right. Uh, where they he let the Zapatistas like, train on his ranch? Basically, he, he turned it into low-income housing. Is that uh, true? Yeah, so I guess he's still a landlord. but um, <laughs> And then he also made... Red Tails, which he produced it himself because no one would um, produce it, which doesn't necessarily make him a leftist either. But he considers himself one. He was calling himself a 99 percenter during during Occupy. Um, But I mean, I always the uh, graphics. I don't like the graphics for the either of the new Star Wars trilogies because it's like that's just going to get old one day. Right. We're, we're, We're experimenting with new, you know, graphic technology or whatever. Uh, it's just going to look like an old video game in a matter of years. The originals, the episodes, you know, four, five, and six, uh, they used actual models, like little spaceships. The originals also look old. They redid I think they them look the more 2000s. realistic. Not- I think they look better than the new stuff. You can spruce them up with some with some three imagery, but the fact that there's fucking actual models that they're filming in real time, I think, is just so much better. What you're referring to is known as practical effects, which I think mm-hmm. actually, I, I agree that the actually like cinema peaked at practical effects, and then this insane thing happened where they were like, "Oh, we can save money, and it technically looks better with CGI or whatever." But like. All the great horror films, like fucking slashers and stuff, practical effects. Everyone loved that shit from growing up because it's like, I don't know, it just looks to your eyeball like something you could actually reach out and touch and interact with yeah. and not like a fucking screensaver or whatever. Right. I, I think you two, you're you're resisting history. You're resisting the path of technology. Uh, we need to embrace Boss Nass and his beautiful digital neck. <laughs> with all the folds that look so real but so far away at the same time. I have a question that might be relevant to our uh, interview today. Are there cops in Star Wars, technically? Do they have a police problem? Are the stormtroopers cops the, or are they just the military? Yeah, well, the, the stormtroopers, I think, also serve as as cops. They're the whole security apparatus on, on the Empire's like regions that it controls. Okay. Comrade um, George, you've done it again. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't know if they're the rebels really need policing. I don't think they do. I think they're self governing. Yeah, right. the rebels are they're they're like the model for George Lucas is good. It's just that everyone's so mad at him about those first couple of movies with the pod racing and the Sebulba and shit that uh, no one can see that he has good politics. <laughs> yeah, Sebulba is communist. You have to defend him. He's he's cool. He has too many arms. The pod racing is great. I, the rest of it, I wasn't you know in love with. But again, you got to compare it to. It's hard to top those four. The five, Asian six. robot empire that was actually good. <laughs> defend yeah. George Lucas. <laughs> yeah. Um, Stormtroopers. There. It's the job. It's not the individuals. You know. It's not a few bad apples. There's no hero stormtroopers. 
which does come up in this interview. This yeah. is actually a really good segue to our interview. Th- that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Think about stormtroopers the whole time, and you'll it'll make sense. You know. Um, yeah, this is like Pink Floyd. You just like play the movie backwards, and it syncs up with our podcast. <laughs> All right, <laughs> who are we talking to today, Alex? Today we're talking to Alex Vitale. Vitale, I'm sorry, did you book another Alex? That's how he booked. I booked another Alex because I don't think we've had enough Alexes on, and I want more perspectives from people of that demographic. All right. We need an answer. We're going to talk about the police, and we're going to talk about the the politics, and if you you just take this extra step, it's also kind of about Star Wars if you think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. This This whole movement is a metaphor for Star Wars. We, we don't even realize it. Drink an entire bottle of chartreuse and watch Star Wars and it'll make sense. You don't need to read the end of policing if you do that instead. That's actually a cheat cheat that I came mm-hmm. up with. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think we're ready to cut to that now and uh, let's play the tape. Boom shakalaka. Right. Boom shakalaka. positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America as long as she on the radio with professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and author of The End of Policing, Alex Vitale. Thanks for coming on the show. You bet, guys. That's Bernie's alma mater. Brooklyn College. Once upon a time. Yeah. Oh, wow. You ever see him there? <laughs> you shoot basketballs you know, He made a campaign him? appearance there, a huge campaign appearance there, but I wasn't able to attend. I think we were there, right? All th- was it all three of us or just you and me? We were invited instead of Alex. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't want to bring it up. I wasn't there. I've never seen Bernie Sanders in real life. I'm not convinced he's he's real. He's really hot. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't capture the the mittens. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Do you know the story about those mittens? It's very sad. It's um what I, I can't remember. So the, the like the back when he was running for president a million years ago, right? He's a he's wearing those mittens in some live event and. Somebody retweets it with like a link to a story, and I don't remember the direct like pieces of this story, but it was very heartbreaking because essentially it was a Medicare for all story. Some woman whose friend or mom or husband died or some shit like made him mittens and was like, Please wear these mittens, Bernie Sanders. And every time he's in public, he wears them and he doesn't like talk about it, he just is wearing this lady's mittens. It's like, yeah. Like an, uh, what do you call it? Not an homage. It's a, I don't know, it's a nice thing. It's very sad if you know the story. Yeah. And here I was assuming they were because his hands were cold. No. Well, probably that too. They're a dead woman's last wish. (laughs) Yeah, something (laughs) fucked up like that. They're they're cursed mittens. Mittens just can't be mittens anymore in 2021. (laughs) Everything has to be like an epic story. That's all been leading up to now. Yeah. Anyway. I blame social media. 
Yeah. I think that it has a lot to do with it because even if something was said before, you probably wouldn't get access to the narrative that quickly. Social media is really out of hand. Like this thing that happened yesterday where Bernie was memed for like sitting on a chair, that was kind of social media just taking a ball and rolling with it that didn't exist, in my opinion. Like I don't think that was a particularly weird photograph, but people just went fucking crazy with like. Bernie's sitting? Whoa, you know? And now he's been uh, criticized for not exercising emotional labor and looking happy. That's right. Uh, I love which, that uh, one. A woman would not get away with, apparently. It's massage. That post made me happy. <laughs> Tio Bernie, frowning for men. Um, no, it's because we like him. It's because we haven't seen him in a while, and it's nice that he sits with his mittens, yeah. which apparently are very sad. Well, we're not I got here. the message... Oh. There's work to be done. Why am I sitting here? <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good takeaway. Absolutely. The way he sat said that. Yeah. The way he did it. <laughs> With well, his coat. We need a body language expert. I to think it, it may that. be because if he was getting inaugurated, which I think, you know, it's unavoidable for him to think about, he probably would have not done this whole pomp and circumstance thing. It would have been a low key, like two minute all right, let's get this over with. Swear me in on the Torah. That's it. Well, this inauguration is just about the mittens. We're not. I bet you're all wondering what these are about. <laughs> Some lady died. No, we're not here to talk about mittens. The gloves are off, folks. We're here to talk about the police. You like how I did that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Nice segue. We're not yes. using kid gloves when talking about the police. They're a problem. Right. Alex is here as our police expert, um, and we do have some questions for him about the issue of the year, you know, law enforcement. Um, I wanted to start with a kind of kind of a general one. In the seminal film Lethal Weapon, Officer Roger Murtaugh laments he is too old for this shit as he is re- deployed repeatedly into deadly shootouts. What is the ideal age for a police officer and why? <laughs> I'm glad we're getting right into the technical details here. Uh, you know, policing used to be something that that people did right out of high school. Mm. And uh, in New York and a lot of places, uh, 20 years and done on a half pension. So it was a young yep. man's game. At that time, it was mostly a man's game. Uh since then, you know, they've put in place uh, some educational or military requirements. And I once spoke to uh, Ray Kelly, the former NYPD commissioner, about this. And he said it's really just about getting them to be a little older and a little bit more experienced. Uh, and they've increased the, the uh, pension um, retirement age to 25 years uh, of service. So they're getting a little bit older. Mm. Right, that's that's going to affect your tackle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, my uh, full disclosure: I've, I've mentioned on the show before. My grandfather was uh, NYPD Boo. Uh, for a Boo. couple. Of years. Yeah. <laughs> I don't defend him, but he had no other. He had literally no other choice. He was Irish, and he could not get hired anywhere else. Uh, so he did that for, <laughs> I guess, twenty years, and then was uh, LaGuardia customs guy. Um, but that's it's interesting to me how uh, ethnicized. The profession used to be, and uh, now they're sort of diversifying. Um, what, what in your research have you have you learned about that, particularly um, the Irish, which I guess I'm biased. I want to learn more about. Uh, and and when did that sort of start to to diversify and become other uh, ethnicities? 
Well, you know, policing, police hiring used to be a political process. Local ward bosses had control of the local police precinct, and they would give out policing jobs as political payback for people who worked for them. And so the police represented a certain kind of ethnic succession that followed from the, you know, the local politics at the neighborhood level. With the implementation of civil service exams and stuff, that that got less clear, it got murkier, but it was still largely the the purview of of white ethnics, you know, who were the usually the second generation and third generation from those waves of, of immigration around 1900. Today, uh, policing is much more diverse. It's actually not that totally out of step with the population of the country as a whole. Uh, t- there are, you know, imbalances in places or whatever. But uh, Jennifer Cobina at, at uh, Michigan State and I just published a piece this week about the fact that, you know, diversifying police is not going to save us, that the right. research is pretty clear about this. Right. Yeah, I read that article. I, I wanted to ask you, what's the problem with the Rainbow Coalition of heavily armed police? <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem is that it assumes the, the rainbow coalition approach assumes that the problem with policing is a failure of implementation. That if the police were just slightly more professional, slightly less biased, slightly more attuned to the community, that this would win over the community that would restore trust in the police. And then the police could get it back to arresting a lot of black people on low level marijuana charges. And that's really the problem. It's not the implementation, it's the mission. Why are we using the police, black, brown, or other, to wage a war on drugs and a war on immigrants and a war on terror and a war on the poor and all the rest? And until we address that broad problem of of gross over-policing, the attitude, bias, life experience of individual officers just doesn't turn out to be very meaningful. You get, you get into this in the article and uh, towards the end of it, after you address the, uh, the flaws of fixing police departments by diversifying them, you talk about the uh, structural issue police departments have because they're used as kind of a, a bandaid to patch over these larger political issues our country has where there's, huge swaths of homeless and people with substance abuse problems and untreated mental health and uh, people in the black market because of economic precarity. Um, Now that we're moving into a new administration, do you think there's, there's going to be some will to kind of uh, a project to address these political concerns? Is that going to get the ball rolling on police defunding? Well, that's what's needed, but I certainly don't see any sign of it. I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind here that that there's a limit to what can be done at the federal level anyway. This is a local problem, right? Right. Policing is a local map. And what we're talking about here has really been a, a local bipartisan dynamic rooted in austerity, which is the, these local officials have decided under the pressure of global competition that all they can do is subsidize the already most successful parts of the economy, whether it's Wall Street or or Hollywood out in California, right? In hopes that they'll become so successful banking in certain places, high tech, you know, out west, that it'll trickle down 
to the rest of us. And, you know, no one wants to be Detroit. No one wants to see this kind of capital strike that Detroit experienced. So they're doing tax breaks for the rich and subsidizing downtown development deals and all the, and, and all the rest in hopes of stimulating economic activity. The problem is, is that this has produced profound inequality. It hasn't trickled down. It has created this wage polarization where we have you know, billionaires paying no taxes and people sleeping on the streets. And policing is being used by these local mayors to paper over this contradiction, but to put a lid on mass homelessness, to manage mass untreated mental health and substance abuse problems, to control black markets that people engage in because they can't get into the formal labor market. So policing is a facilitator of this strategy of austerity and growing inequality. And right now, I don't see local mayors ready to reject that fundamental politics. You see a city council member here or there, DSA, you know, folks who are beginning to challenge this approach to talk about participatory economics and broader economic development strategies and and redistributing resources more equitably. But the mainstream of the Democratic Party is still committed to austerity politics backed up by intensive and invasive policing. Right. Um, So it kind of looks like the direction a lot of, uh, uh, you know, political momentum is moving in is kind of, more patchworks, like more sensitivity trainings, diversity initiatives, yeah, uh, that kind of thing. Do you think if these um, if these initiatives passed and there were more diversity initiatives and more sensitivity trainings, and then that didn't work, would that move the conversation forward, or is this entire back and forth just completely in the world of ideology? No, I think that's where we are. Right, the the officers responsible for the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis had had implicit bias training, de-escalation training, mindfulness training, were wearing body cameras, were a diverse group of officers, were operating under a new use of force policy around sanctity of life. I mean, Minneapolis enacted all these reforms, and, and it just made no difference. And that's what people have seen and experienced across the country is that, you know, here in New York, after they killed uh, Eric Garner, they did implicit bias training and body cameras and de-escalation training. And nobody who watched the NYPD this summer could possibly say that any of that made any difference because right. it just didn't. It's, and so that's why the new movement is about defunding the police, about taking away this role for policing rather than imagining we can fix them with a training program. It's a systemic problem. And you really see the way that the liberal mind conceives of and portrays this stuff in the media being very individualistic. You know, it's all, this is an aberration. Uh, A cop doing something bad is a cop doing their job bad. They don't see that the problem is their job is the bad, like what they're supposed Mm -hmm. to do is the bad thing or whatever. And what's really funny about that to me is that you have this situation where you had police violence uh, looked pretty bad. So, you know, at some point we go, well, why don't we diversify the police? Now we have this, diverse thing with its boot on your neck and it's like not 
solving this problem at all. But with the sensitivity training, I just can't help imagine at some point I'm going to get gunned down by some guy in like a SWAT, you know, gear suit up thing who's just like, I see you, I hear you. Like he's not, <laughs> the point is like they, completely they beat, missed. They beat the guy up who did the diversity trainings in San Francisco. He got really? beat up at one of the summer protest by the cops he had been giving implicit bias training to. <laughs> Jesus. That God. had to be incredibly cathartic. <laughs> well, Revealing, if nothing else. Minneapolis has been sort of, uh, yeah, in the in the news, I guess, over the past uh, almost year um, with, the, of course, the George Floyd murder and uh, the sort of quote-unquote reforms that we've seen since. I know earlier this fall uh, several city council members were overheard at a an event after they had promised to abolish quote unquote, abolish the police force there that they, they were saying like, well, that just means we have to rename it like that. You know, we don't really have to, to abolish it. We just need to come up with a new name. Uh, but it does seem like eventually uh, there was some, some money that was reappropriated there. Can you fill us in on, on what's happened in Minneapolis? And, and is that, uh, has that been successful? Is there, is that city moving in the right direction? So Minneapolis is really like a, a work in progress. We don't know what's going to end up happening there. There were a lot of kind of dramatic statements made in the absence of a concrete plan and right. a lot of backsliding. And, and you know, just to go back to something Jake said about, about liberals, right? Part of the problem here is that liberals are really committed to this idea that, you know, they can benefit from austerity. They don't have any choice. And they're also committed to this idea of the rule of law and mm -hmm. that police exist to enact the rule of law in a way that's just automatically beneficial to everyone. Right. Right. This naive understanding of the nature of policing and the legal systems that they're enforcing. The good news is there's actually uh, a new new report that just came out that says uh, it's called The Demand is Still Defund the Police, uh, and it's at interruptingcriminalization.com, and they lay out the huge number of victories that have been won in the last year in, in dozens of cities around the country. Uh, there were big investments in alternatives to policing and in some places actual you know significant cuts to police budgets in places like Austin and Oakland and, and Durham, North Carolina, and, and unlikely places like Salt Lake City, Utah. Mm. You know, this is not just about San Francisco and New York, which actually New York, we didn't see any big wins in New York. Right. And I think in a way that it's instructive because <clears throat> the wins tended to happen in those cities where there had been clear abolitionist-oriented organizing going on for several years. The cities where it only sort of emerged in that form this summer typically didn't really win anything. And that was the problem in New York, is that in New York, most of the organizing around policing had been procedural, you know, change this policy, have more oversight of the police, throw a couple of cops in jail, and that will fix the problem. And it was only at the beginning of this year that the, the big groups in New York working on this issue clearly articulated a defund the police analysis 
And so they hadn't had a chance to do that grassroots community organizing that's going to be needed to really win these things. And Minneapolis is kind of in the middle of that. They've been doing the organizing. They made some progress. They're going big, and that's going to take time to be realized, I think. Right. Well, New York is an interesting case, too, because, of course, you had de Blasio, who was elected on uh, racial profiling as, as one of his key planks uh, because of his, his son. Um, and I guess we've seen sort of an end to stop and frisk, quote unquote, uh, the, the official policy, which was um, overruled. And uh, as soon as it overruled, de Blasio actually changed his position, which people forget. He was he was for stop and frisk before he was against it. Um, but he hasn't really done anything uh to my mind that's been very significant uh but the nypd hates him right there's that that's one of the sort of hazards that i think uh was important to consider is this sort of paramilitary organization in a city like new york that is the nypd it has its own you know intelligence service it's a massive massive bureaucracy that can kill people uh and you know it is there even an opportunity to come up against them um it, isn't that like their security risks it seems at, at at stake for you know a future mayor or city council or or anything any kind of movement that wants to take away their power how, how do you even approach that uh in a city like new york where the police force is just so massively powerful well i don't think we should overstate the power of the institution itself. It is very powerful and it does have its own security apparatus, obviously, and that that is a threat both to our movements Mm -hmm. and to elected officials. But a lot of their power comes from the fact that they have allies Mm. outside of policing, that they don't just speak for themselves. They speak for corporate interests who give money to the police foundation, you know, and who lobby for their budgets with the city council. They speak on behalf of, you know, conservative homeowners associations. They speak on behalf of conservative merchants groups. So they're at the center of an ideological nexus. And they are the kind of pull for deeply conservative politics in what are otherwise more progressive urban areas. So they, they so when they are speaking, they're not just speaking for their own institutional interests. They're speaking for often the whole conservative movements in these cities. They are the, the center of that. And so part of what's needed is to peel off their allies, hmm. to isolate them and to point out the toxic politics that's involved. And this includes their unions. Right. To say this is what these unions actually stand for. They're not just here to get another two percent on their pension. Right. They're pushing bills to criminalize homeless people. They're pushing bills to increase bail. They're pushing bills to, you know, turn gangs into, you know, uh, RICO cases with bring in federal prosecutors. Right. So they're actively involved in this politics. And so this all needs to be made more clear out in the open and to enact a political cost for elected officials who take their campaign contributions, who take their endorsements, and to say, you you can't just say, oh, well, it's another labor union. 
No, you, when you're taking that endorsement, you're embracing a whole set of extremist right-wing politics that go along with it. And you can't do that and be our friend anymore. Yeah. And that's, it's been exciting to see. We'll see, you know, how it plays out, but the, the slate that has been endorsed by DSA on the New York city council running for that, um, includes a lot of people who are i think all of them uh wanted to fund the the nypd but we'll we'll see how successful they are um yeah there's a lot and there and also i think about 50 of of the candidates signed a pledge that they wouldn't accept any uh, contributions or endorsements from the police and corrections unions mm -hmm. so across the city that's becoming normative right it's uh, interesting the way the uh, the culture war conservative angle of supporting the police manifests. Like uh, I know you said you're in Brooklyn. Have you ever been to Melody Lanes in Sunset Park? Yes, yes. Have I you hurt seen their my shoulder redesign? there a couple of years ago? Actually, <laughs> oh, oh I, I didn't mean to bring up such trauma, but <laughs> they had a very interesting redesign for their their uh, bowling logo, which used to I think just be a pin, and now is a Blue Lives Matter flag where, oh <laughs> where the pin is a black outline <laughs> holy shit <laughs> and it's still bowling themed but kind of with like a menacing physical violence angle to it wait, wait, so the ball is blue and then the pin is a black person oh there is no ball it's pretty much just an american flag with a bowling pin okay you get the metaphor it's they're about yeah. hitting somebody with something <laughs> yeah, well, this is typical of, of, you know, a kind of petty bourgeois, small business owner, deeply conservative politics, right, who wants authoritarianism, basically, to, to keep them safe and protect their, their business. And this, is, this has got to be pointed out that it's, it's not okay to have that kind of symbolism and point of view, that you're, when you're embracing that, what you're embracing is you know, racist police terror directed at the most vulnerable communities in our society. Right. Yeah. So there's almost like a, like a struggle session that needs to happen. Well, Starting and some businesses places. are suffering the repercussions of blue lives matter flags and all the rest. That's a real thing that's happening. Well, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Salt Lake City, and I feel like Utah has, I, I know a few years ago, they actually took a pretty bold stance on homelessness and started buying homeless people like apartments or renting them rooms. And a like housing first approach. That's right. And they've right. also been very good on, on some um, school policing issues and really looking at like community schools models where the school is a resource hub for families and the larger community. So uh, there's a lot of interesting experimentation underway in Utah. Yeah. And I think some of that must be because there's, you know, it's a heavily Republican state, so they just don't have the the liberal boogeyman. And so they're going to think about things maybe a little less ideologically. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about the war on drugs, because that does seem like something that probably a majority of Americans now uh, want to end. It's just kind of this phantom war that we're still fighting, that, that law enforcement is still fighting, even though most people uh, think it's think it's retrograde it's um, up there with our other real wars that right. people no longer support but we <laughs> exactly <are occupied>. yeah <laughs> yeah uh and we are seeing a legalization movement in some places i think new uh, cuomo just announced something uh unfortunately it's like looking like it'll not be 
you know, do what I think needs to happen, which is actually give um, give a hand up to uh, people who have been hurt by the war on drugs the most. Um, but let's say we legalize drugs, right? So, because I think this sometimes gets a bit overemphasized, the war on drugs. There's still a lot of like local ordinances and stuff that um, police forces use and local governments use to criminalize poverty. Uh, is it is you know is, is there a danger just focusing on narcotics and not on sort of uh, quote unquote quality of life ordinances too? Yes, yes, absolutely. So while the war on drugs has been a central tool for the over policing of vulnerable communities, it's they will come up with other tools if we don't change the broader politics. Yeah. So I think for one thing, that's why any scheme around drug decriminalization or legalization should be undertaken from a kind of racial justice framework so that Mm -hmm. the process of winning it is also a process of rejecting these systems of social control, of racialized social control. Um, But that also has to be linked to a broader agenda around you know, economic justice. So what are we doing around discrimination in housing and employment and the delivery of social services and a whole broader, you know, racial and economic justice agenda? So policing is one part of that. It's an enabler of some of the worst aspects of our political economic system. But obviously, uh, making a few changes to the legal code is not, is not going to be enough. You do a great job um, going into the details of the, this large front of change in your book, which you went over uh, in the middle of last summer, talking about you know the role that police play is often um, this big umbrella of uh, public tasks that should be broken down into like eight different jobs. It's kind of like two entire different approaches to the world, right? Which is one is kind of like a, a, a punished and... Uh, revenge ideology that you see represented in our represented in our conservative politics in America and another is more of a progressive coalition building thing. And so I I wanted to talk a little bit about what we were looking at this week in the last few weeks with the uh the Capitol riot. Part of what's happened here is that this process of neoliberal austerity needs to frame social problems as being the result of individual and moral failure that will only respond to punitive interventions. Because the alternative would be that they would have to acknowledge that these problems are the result of market failures. And that's what they don't want. They don't want interventions in markets, right? Neoliberalism. They want deregulation and special perks for themselves. So, People embracing these punitive authoritarian interventions are facilitating those market-centered worldviews. And the other approach is saying, no, we need human-centered systems that are focused on trying to care for people, to repair harms, to build people up. And that's really what's dividing us here. And, and we can see this you know, in, in all these different arenas. Um, the thing I wanted to ask you about is I think it's probably related to that where, so you have the, the, we've talked a little bit about the conservative 
you know, point of view and ideology around supporting uh, the police. Uh, then you have this much weirder thing, in my opinion, which is the, the liberal point of view, which is we've talked about, you know, fueled by like, what else can you do? And this is just the way it is. And we need this rule of law and all this stuff. Um, I guess something I've been kind of fixated on since the, the fallout of the Capitol riot is this Eugene Goodman guy, because uh, I what I feel like is happening is that there was a police officer who eventually when everyone sifted through enough footage, they found a story that made uh, for liberal, you know, catnip or bait or whatever. It's a, it, it, it bubbled its way to the top of the, the media discourse next week, which is that there's a, an officer who's black, right? So you can't be like, this is a mean white guy cop. And uh, he, you know, made some moves that were like, uh, looked kind of effectively like smart policing or whatever. And what we get out of this is a story where no one really knows why they're particularly celebrating this guy, but they're like, look, he's, it can be done. There is a way to do policing that, uh, you know, that is good and functions and I guess to me, it struck me as particularly liberal because it was also like very individualistic. So a liberal kind of is going to look at police and go, well, some of these are very, very bad at the job and some of them are really good at the job. And let's move from there in terms of assessing how to fix the, the problems that are a result of the job. But like, what are we just going to hire a bunch of really, really good cops or look at the, what the job <laughs> is itself, you know? Um, what do you think about that? Because to me, it struck me as I mean, I think you're absolutely right. This was a this was a, a liberal defense of policing uh, 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 to try to restore their reputation, and so uh, that's absolutely what was going on is is trying to re relegitimate this idea that that there is this thing that's good policing, and this guy is the embodiment of it. Of course, you know that ignores the overall outcome of what happened, right? Many deaths, destruction, and profound political failure. Right. Yeah. And you can kind of see the, the absurdities and the logic of the individual uh, argument there because, I mean, what's the end goal? I mean, the, the end step of a, of a structural critique, and that's that, oh, we change the way the police functions. If the problem is just there aren't enough good cops, you just get into a Clone Wars style situation where you just take the really good one and find a way to spread their seed as many times as you can. And that's where my grandfather was. We should, yeah, they just want to clone him. Django Fett. Yeah. <laughs> that's the strategy. Right, I'm doing a selfie with Django Fett. <laughs> it's the original um, one. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm curious too about uh, what you think about the Capitol, and you know, now there's sort of this discussion that um, yes, what happened was was bad. Was it was it fascism? Was it not fascism? Uh, and what kind of ramifications does this have for the the security state? Because you know, it was, one of our last episodes was about. Uh, the far right and how um, law enforcement bureaucracies really don't prioritize that much as they as so much as they do left wing groups, even though the far right is far more dangerous. Um, do you see a, a problem, though, here arising with uh, more funding, more laws being put on the books in the name of fighting far right fascist groups uh, that just go to feeding this bureaucracy that, that will end up um, hurting hurting left wing organizers? You know, my my first reaction to the the Capitol events was that, uh, you know, looking carefully at a bunch of the videos, was that this was not 
going to be explained by saying, oh, the officers just let them in, mm. right? That, that, that somehow this was a failure of some individual officers or groups of officers on the ground. And then that's the extent of the analysis we need. At the same, because it was clear that this was a very violent crowd attacking them, injuring and killing officers. And in certain situations, officers got surrounded and there was no point in like fighting over a barricade when they were, you know, protesters were filling in behind them, things like this. Uh, it's clear also that there was a huge failure at the top of these institutions. The sergeants at arms for the House and the Senate, you know, overrode a request to bring the National Guard in. There was either a misassessment of the risk or a willful uh, failure to provide sufficient security. The mayor's office in D.C. sent a clear message that they wanted a softer touch. So there was a failure there in a sense. But really, this is all about a political failure, right? Mm -hmm. so, so the other mistake we don't want to make is to pivot to saying, well, let's blame the demonstrators through intensive criminalization. Yeah. Let's go and review all the videos, round them all up, and let's infiltrate their movements, enhance our surveillance powers, give the surveillance state you know, more, the more political policing powers. Because we know that in the long run, those resources are going to get used against the left, not against the right. That's, that's the long history of policing in the United States and everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, not even the long run, right? There, like, yeah, and the short tomorrow. run, right. It's <laughs> going to get used against Antifa and black identity extremists and all the rest as our movements remain robust and, and threaten you know, the Biden status quo. The, the real issue for me is who is really responsible for this toxic politics, right? If you're looking for accountability, let's go after the members of Congress, right? Who, who enabled this nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. And Corey Bush in St. Louis put forward a bill, you know, to do exactly that, to expel those members of Congress who were actively involved in fomenting the lies that have been building up this movement, but also, who are the big money donors behind a lot of these, you know, QAnon and militia YouTube stars? Right. right. Let's have an investigation of that. And how do those people benefit from ginning up all these conspiracy theories and right wing extremist politics? You know, there's a lot of billionaire money involved in this. And let's mm -hmm. expose those people. Yeah. For some reason, that's like a bridge too far for, uh, you know, people just kind of in the the mind for the frame of mind that you get beaten into in this country um you know looking into the the, the dark money coke to puss that caused this sort of shit to happen in the first place impossible right but for some reason it's conceivable to like invoke the sedition act against a bunch of you know guys with like fucking football face paint on and shit who just went crazy um <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, just like, to get YouTube followers, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, you're you're literally talking about invoking laws that were created to stop like socialists from you know protesting uh, World War One. You know, this is an insane precedent to set. Um, <laughs> there was a there was a well, the Sedition Act goes back to to uh, President Adams, but yes, ah, right, right. We've talked about this in the show, but I don't remember everything. Um, <laughs> well played. <laughs> 
Um, I wanted to ask you a, a question. This is maybe a little bit less important, but I just since you know about police, I was a little curious because there's an officer that I'm obsessed with that that uh, or a police chief that I'm obsessed with that um, he popped up for a second. In all of this uh, Art Acevedo, now police chief of the HPD in Houston, used to be Austin when I lived there. Um, made a big public showing of firing one of his officers who uh, turned out to have participated in the Capitol insurrection. Uh, do you know anything about him? He's full of fun oh, trivia. Oh, sure. We, we <laughs> chat occasionally. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah. AV to AV, huh? Yeah, well, you know, I, I've been in the policing scholar space for decades, and uh, also I'm from Houston. Oh, me too. Uh, he's always trying to get me to, to come and do ride-alongs and stuff whenever I'm down there, which I have, have not taken him up on. Yeah, he but loves those. He, he used he to is, come to the comedy club and try to get comics to do that with him all the time, and we would be like, ah, nice try. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's it's all about, you know, policing as an institution is a legitimacy seeking organism. That's its nature. Yeah. Because it, it is so illegitimate. So it invests a huge amount of resources in trying to produce legitimacy for itself. And ride alongs is one of the ways they do that. These things are highly orchestrated. I've been on many of them all around the world. So uh, very familiar with that strategy. So art is at the is in the lead of this kind of reform movement, procedural reform movement within policing. And really most big city chiefs share his general point of view. Some have more latitude to enact it than others. You know, he, he has a, a police officers association that he has to deal with, but it's a strong chief system and he can do a lot and he does a lot symbolically. And, He's invested in this idea of better training and better procedures and better officers will make for better policing. And so he's willing to point out bad policing, but it doesn't change anything. It doesn't right. actually change the policing because in Houston, like the rest of the country, the police are in charge of everything, chasing down loose dogs, managing schools and dealing with mental health problems, chasing homeless people around and keeping a lid on the consequences of intense poverty. So as long as nothing like that, nothing changes on those dimensions, these kinds of superficial procedural reforms are not going to make any major difference. I wanted to go back a second uh, to the Capitol riot just for a little bit, because uh, this, this has been on my mind. I read your interview with NPR, I think the day after it happened, or was that while it was happening? <laughs> pretty, pretty quickly after, yeah. Were you on the ground for that? What was that? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I was just reviewing these videos as quick as I could. And, you know, I had worked with the code switch team over the summer in trying to help figure out what defund the police meant. So when there was all this discourse about the failure of policing on the Capitol, they, they called me up and said, let's, let's talk this through a little bit. Right. So my question is a, in reference to something you say in the article and you brought up a few minutes ago, which is to view officers uh, uh, sympathizing with the protesters or letting them in as a individual failure is not helpful and not correct. And I agree with that. I think that's definitely true. But isn't there something to the fact that we know that far right groups and white supremacist groups have been intentionally working their way into law enforcement for decades and seem like they're trying to use 
the institution as like a political strong arm to get what they want in politics. Like, isn't political affiliation part of the problem here? So on the one, yeah, yeah, so both things are true. On the one hand, we know there are a lot of affinities within policing for these extremist views, whether it's QAnon stuff or three percenters or, you know, militias or just intense Trumpists. Uh, we, we, we have the head of the sergeant's union here in New York doing television interviews with a QAnon mug showing on his bookcase, you know. So w- we know there were police involved in the insurrection and we know that there were police who were sympathetic to these views among the Capitol police. But that does not explain what happened. It's not sufficient to explain what happened because the forces at work here are so much bigger than that. So does that mean we shouldn't be concerned about this? Yes, we should be concerned about it, but it's nothing new. Police were huge members, a huge part of the membership of the John Birch Society. Police were closely aligned with KKK groups, right? Police were part of anti-communist leagues historically. So there's nothing new about this. We need to rein in their power rather than imagining we're going to clean house. You know, there's something about the job, right? Police are violence workers enacting a particular notion of order on society. And that comports with right-wing ideologies, And so policing is always going to be a fertile territory for this. And I don't think you're ever going to be able to engage in some ideological house cleaning that's going to fix this. Instead, we have to dial back their capacity to micromanage our lives. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know. You see these, uh, these like hot takes flowing around the internet all the time where they're like, well, maybe the problem isn't racial diversity, but we need more Democrat cops. Will that fix the problem? <laughs> Will you stop hurting me? They if you're are a mostly Democrats. They are mostly Democrats, is my sense, certainly in the big cities. For sure. I and mean, you could definitely see that at the uh, police protests when they're genuinely confused why you're there. Um, <laughs> Uh, the the other question I had is uh, right after the election, right? There was a you know kind of centrist Democratic media talking point that was flying around. Now I don't know if this has been thoroughly debunked by now. I suggest I suspect we'll be seeing it again soon. But that the police abolition defund the police line cost the party votes, and it's hurting the the good liberals of this country. Do you think this is true? Do Americans just love the blue lives too much? Well, so, you know, this movement was not focused on the national race. This was no one thought we were going to be trying to set the ideological agenda for the Democratic Party in in the 2020 election. We were focused and I say we because I'm part of this movement and I'm on the ground working with folks across the country. And uh, my sense was you know, no one was trying to intervene at that level, really. We, people were focused on local budget battles going to city council hearings and building up community support for these alternative ideas. It became a flashpoint in the election because of the intensity of the protests this summer. And the implications of that for the national election are, I think, unclear. 
while it obviously pulled poorly in certain areas, there's also counter research that shows that it helped increase turnout in some urban areas because there was this level of political anger and mobilization that was a part of this movement, right? I mean, Philadelphia helped win the presidency for Biden and those votes came from black neighborhoods. And that's true in Milwaukee and Detroit and some of these other swings and Atlanta, right? So we, we don't know really what the effect was on the national election. Uh, and we weren't asking people to run on a defund the police platform. Right. right. I mean, at least for me, it just seems like it's uh, liberals allowing reactionaries to stage the conversation on a national level again and again, because, of course, Republicans are going to talk about race riots in the street and defending your cops because that's their beat. They need yeah. to look like the victims. They can seize control. Yeah. Centrist, centrist Democrats are much more interested in neutralizing their left than neutralizing the Republicans. So they will always blame it all, everything they can, on the left. Right. It feels yeah. that way. <laughs> yeah. It is that way. I would, yeah. It's uh, also, also the thing with the we can't say defund the police. I, I meant to, to mention this in this episode where we talked about Lenin and uh, what is to be done and all this stuff. But there's this thing that Lenin talks about called tailing, where there's sort of a tendency to you know, say that we all, we need to main, like stay behind the will of the people rather than, you know, shouldn't we be directly trying to like influence and uh, work with and like push the line forward? Um, yeah, but not through sloganeering. Right. I think, yeah. I think in this sense, I, I am sympathetic to this idea that the solution to this is not getting everyone to say defund the police. The solution to this is to create a new political logic on the ground, which says that we should use the state to care for people, to lift people up, to empower communities, not to empower billionaires. And so, but to do that, we have to go into communities and talk to people about how to do that. What would that really look like? What would it mean to take a non-police-centered approach to youth violence? to homelessness, to managing the problems around drug use and sex work. So we have real things to say about this, but we need the time and opportunity to lay it out for people. And that's what's going on. That's, what's, that's why this summer no one was holding up a sign saying more money for police body cameras. <laughs> they were holding up Joe signs Biden, saying defund the police because this work is happening. And it is continuing to happen. And I think we're going to see a lot more victories in the year to come. For sure. Okay, we're rounding out here. I guess if I was going to leave on one question just to ask you, you know, big picture, what do you think is the largest structural barrier to getting this movement off the ground? The fact that the, the big city Democratic mayors continue to be committed to austerity politics. And so they have an investment in undermining the movement because it's that movement threatens their downtown real estate deals and their tax breaks to contributors and all this stuff that's at the center of mainstream democratic urban politics. So the answer here is the same answer for climate change and everything else. You just got to scare your mayor. It's always the damn mayor. We got to get rid of the liberals. We got to get rid of the yep. lip. You know, we're all on the same page here. Yeah. This is great. Um, 
I, I think that wraps it up. Does anybody else have any more questions before we go? Uh, I just want to say all mayors are bastards. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All right, and there's the episode title. So you got that. Uh, Alex Vitale, thanks for coming on. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, I'm on, you know, all the social media platforms. Twitter is a big one, at A Vitale. Cool. cool. All right, awesome. All right, thank you for joining okay, us. Okay, that's it for another week, everybody. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. All right. It's finished. It's all right. finished. That was fun. Thanks for coming.